Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. Um, the COVID-19 pandemic is still going on and, you know, around the world, it has shut down schools and colleges, including Pakistan, and put really impacting the education sector severely, uh, increasing the need for technology-led solutions that increase access to education during these uncertain times. To talk about this topic and edtech in general, I am joined by Anam Sadek. Anam is an old friend. We actually went to high school together and we were just talking about before I hit record that it, it's been a while since we caught up. She's the co-founder and chief education officer at EdCasa, a startup whose mission is to provide easy access to quality education to Pakistan's youth. Anam, welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you, Zair. Thanks for having me. I, the, the stats are really stark in Pakistan, right? Like 23 million Pakistanis uh, out of children out yeah. of school, about half of those that do attend school actually fail the annual board exams. And that's yeah. really the, the why at Casa was set up. So I want you to share with us a bit about the vision and the mission of the company um, and yeah. how are things going in these uncertain times given coronavirus and, and how have you if, or thought about impacting the education sector in Pakistan? Yeah, I was there. You actually, the stats that you've opened with is, is, uh, is something that would keep me up at night. You know, the fact that there are 22 million out of school children in Pakistan, the second highest in the world. And sadly, those who are going to school, a lot of them are unable to graduate. And if you're not graduating from high school, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, then really what becomes of you, because now it's a knowledge-based economy. I mean, that's how the world is competing and moving forward. Um, so as an educator, I've been about uh, in the education space for about 10 years. Um, I've tried to look at the educational challenge from different perspectives, working in different jobs with different uh, organizations. And I felt like there was no comprehensive solution that uh, was being presented to this huge problem. Uh, there were a lot of people trying to work and trying to work together as well, but it just uh, never would, I felt like there was, the gap was too wide. Um, so how EdCasa kind of came about was um, that I was in the United States and uh, the other two co-founders of EdCasa, Fahad Tanvir, who's also my husband, and Suhail uh, Ali, he's also a graduate from, from the US. The three of us had sort of returned to Pakistan doing pursuing different degrees and, and really relying on, on the education that we had gained. I went to Carnegie Mellon and studied public policy. Fahad was at, at Harvard and he was studying finance. Suhail was at MIT and his core focus was more towards strategy. So the three of us sort of met, and it was a coincidence that we met, ran into Sohail uh, at an education event. Um, and we were basically mentoring other students on, on uh, what to study in and sort of how to take their careers forward. And it was a turning point for the three of us because we met and it was like-minded, the discussion where we discussed how big the education problem was and how we felt that tech was a solution to it. So in Pakistan, the, the, the way the technology is being driven forward and the consumption and the uptake of technology is, 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 is really quite interesting to notice. Uh, you know, month on month, the number of users are increasing, social media uptake is, is really going up. Uh, and the best part is that mobile penetration and um, 4G penetration is increasing. And I think GSMA just recently put out a report that, uh, you know, 80% of uh, there's 80% coverage of, of 4G internet right now in Pakistan by the end of this year. So they're really reassuring facts somewhat, uh, you know, with the progress that technology is making in the country. So we felt like this could really leapfrog, just the use of technology could really leapfrog traditional constraints that education sector has faced. Uh, right now, we don't have enough schools. Uh, it's a huge problem, especially girls' schools. They're very few and far out. And a lot of girls you see are not able to pursue their education because it's really hard for them to you know, travel long distances and go to 
other schools. Um, so, so technology can leapfrog that constraint that comes with physical buildings. And then secondly, uh, you know, teaching 22 million students would require an army of teachers, right? So where do you get these teachers from to, to teach all of these kids? And who are, are there are a lot of uh, issues right now around teacher training, around teacher retention, around quality of teachers. There's so much data which shows that learning outcomes are not what they should be, you know. Year on year, you see from ASER reports and LEAP reports about how, uh, you know, a child in, uh, in, in, for example, fifth grade is unable to do math, that's a uh, second or third grader. So all of these causes, all of these things uh, as an educator would, would really stand out. And I wanted to do something, you know, meaningful in this area and try my best to, uh, you know, bridge this gap. So, so I was lucky we found each other, all of us co-founders, and then we sort of built a team. And, uh, and one by one, it was like a catalyst to data action. You know, we started with Ed Casa, we got into some really good partnerships with different donor organizations, and we got some really good clients who understood what we were doing. I did feel like at that time we were kind of ahead of our time because it was it took some time for people to understand how edtech works and there were a lot of uh, questions around it uh, but you know we would always start with a small pilot we'd always go to a school and say okay give us a chance let us show what we've got and every time you know that school would give us more schools to work with and so our network sort of developed we started with three schools uh, at the start of 2019 and right now we're at about 40 schools that we're working with we're reaching about 75,000 students um, so sorry, I, I'd actually like to just clarify uh, it casts us um, how we reach these students. Uh, so one part of it is that we work with schools, uh, as I mentioned. So what we do is that we um, do live streaming of classes and we focus specifically on STEM because that's where uh, it's really hard to find quality teachers, especially in rural areas and in, in higher grades. Uh, so what we tell, we go to a school, we say, okay, it's hard for you to find these teachers. So we, you can outsource the teaching of these STEM subjects to us. We're going to conduct the teaching. We're going to do the testing. We're going to give you reports. And we'll make sure that the student is equipped to be able to graduate from high school, be able to pass their board intermediate exam, because that's where the problem lies. So we reach out directly to schools. And then we also do students who have access to smartphones. They can uh, watch a, a live classes from the comfort of their home using mobile technology. That's interesting. And so, you know, one of the things uh, when you said it's hard to convince, I was thinking immediately like, okay, you're going to tell teachers that we're going to put students in front of a screen and teach them. And yeah. probably that I'm guessing, I'm assuming that that was a pushback that you must have received. But again, you need innovative methods and something that, you know, for example, the prime minister of Pakistan talks about that there's a divide in education, which he has a point about between the elite and non-elite. Um, but it's also more sophisticated and more complicated than that, right? There are cultural barriers, language barriers. So how does EdCasa go about coming up with the right innovative solutions to bridge these barriers and make sure that the outcomes uh, are achieved? Yeah, it's a great question, Ozer. And, and yeah, definitely in Pakistani society, we are you know stratified along gender, along economic uh, lines and so on. So there is that, but the thing is that I think it's a myth to say that uh, technology is just reserved for the elite. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we work with schools that actually are at the sort of lowest end, you know, at the bottom of the pyramid, so to speak. And sorry to these interrupt, are the these, are, sure. these are government schools or private or a bit of both? It's a bit of both. Uh, so we work, with, we work with schools basically that either an NGO would run um, you know, or a very low-cost private school, which would charge about a thousand rupees per student uh, for for the entire month, 
So we're working with, with students really at the bottom of the pyramid and the update for them has been, it's been really exciting. Like for them, they've heard of how, you know, technology is being used in, in more expensive schools and, and it, they're very welcoming to a new innovation in their area and the word of mouth really gets around. Uh, so actually what you've got to do is look at the need, look at the sort of, look at this user, right? Like we were very clear as a social impact company that we want to go to the bottom of the pyramid. There is a large volume there Sure. Uh, the, the cost, the, the transaction of the sort of, uh, what would you say, the price tag associated has to be very reasonable so that it's affordable for them. Uh, but the need really lies with that user because that user is the one who doesn't have a school, that user is the one who doesn't have qualified teachers to teach them, that is the user who's failing their exam. So what we did before we started at CASA was when the idea was just in our mind, we did about 800 household surveys to really understand what the pain points were. Uh, we knew all of this data about students not going to school, but who are these students? What are their constraints? What does their family life look like? How can we incentivize them to you know, study? Uh, and then students who are failing, why are they failing? What is the exact problem? What can we do? How do we build in a human-centered design in, in, into EdCASA system? Uh, so coming back to that sort of uh, you know, stratification along the lines of income, um, so what I'm trying to say is that our B2B solution, which was working with schools, was actually designed for students at the bottom of the pyramid. It has great economies of scale where, you know, what happens is that a teacher, we hire an amazing teacher, right? Like the kind of teacher who goes to the most expensive private school. And then we do a training with them on online teaching approaches. We get them up to that par, and then they are able to teach hundreds of students at the same time. Uh, that means that individual user costs would decrease, um, making it affordable for that user and giving them, you know, bridging that sort of gap that they had. And from the business side, it makes sense as well, right? Because you're playing on volume. Now the question associated comes that how do you manage a class size that is bigger? So for that, there are lots of best practices that we've looked at. We've worked with the University of Madison, Wisconsin um, to design an amazing teacher training program and design sort of different components in online teaching to ensure that outcomes are being, uh, you know, met that we want for us with this laser focus on improving their grades and making them uh, do well in their examinations. So we've incorporated all of that. And, 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 and you know, the, the West is, it has been doing online teaching for a very long time now, right? So I, I've also worked with the Chelsea Public School District. Fahad is also taught online in the, in the US. So we brought all of that experience with us and felt like this was something that was ready to hit the Pakistani market and then really scale up. That, that's fascinating. So the survey, I just was curious, you did the survey. What were some of the interesting things or surprising things that you saw from that yeah. data that you collected? Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, still I recall a lot and I tell my teachers is that when we asked students what was the biggest sort of problem in the education system right now, uh, was there, do you want to guess what it was and what they felt that needed addressing most? I'm guessing the quality of the way the teacher communicated with them and how they treated them. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a lot to do with that, that they felt that the teacher was not respectful, that they felt that the teacher was uh, rude and, you know, they, they were just not uh, motivated to come to that class and, and deal with, with, the, with the kind of environment. Um, so for me as an educator, I always thought that it was a lack of skill set in, in terms of technical expertise, like a teacher might not be a subject specialist uh, or the teacher might not know how to, um, you know, teach something technical, but actually it just came down to their communication and them being uh, respectful and them harnessing a relationship because education is a relationship.
Um, so I think that was a very interesting insight I got. The second thing was uh, actually seeing how much people are spending in education. I mean, uh, your grade nine to grade 12, 90% of these students are taking um, tuitions, you know, it's mm -hmm. a huge market. So I think that was very interesting also to see how much money is actually and, being spent. And sorry, again, so the, the household survey, because your target market is sort of at the bottom of the pyramid, I would assume that tuition expenditure would be high for like elite schools and elite society members. But there's, yeah. there's, these are people who would go to that thousand rupee a month, fifteen hundred rupee a month. Even they, you're saying from the data you collected, yeah. were spending yeah. inordinate amounts of money outside of school for their child education. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. We we did uh, we we chose our sample very carefully, and it was all across SEC A to SEC D. And uh, even in SEC C, for example, you were getting students spending three thousand rupees a month on tuitions on average. Um, and and SEC, one thing, SEC A to D are like socioeconomic classes, right? Just yeah. for the person who does not know, these Absolutely. are A being the highest Absolutely. and B being the lowest. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But here, here is a caveat in all of this that we are looking at students who are grade 9 to grade 12. Um, you know, the dropout is very wide at the grade 8 level and then even between primary and secondary school. So a student who's committed to the point of being in grade 9 is more likely to spend more, is more likely to have crossed a lot more barriers than you know the other counterparts who left okay. education at the primary stage. And was there like, even with that data, so that's interesting and you know, I just for full disclosure, you did not share this data with me. So I was just having a guess of mine in terms of what the issue was because I look back yeah. and we went to school together, right? Like I look back at teachers, even in a private school that we went to, um, the ones that I personally like the most were the teachers who may not know everything, may not be the smartest yeah. teacher, quote unquote, uh, but they were the most yeah. respectful and the most engaging and knew how to communicate, not just with me as a student, but they knew the personalities of each student and sort of tailored their approach based on who in the classroom was struggling at that point in time. And that was always an issue, even when I look back. Um, but coming back to the survey, was there a difference uh, across genders that you also saw in terms of what the issues were, given that, you know, yeah. in Pakistan, women's education is such, continues to be such a big problem and, and girls' education remains, you know, as you said, uh, parents are unwilling to send their girls for long distances to schools, et cetera. So did you find anything interesting that cut across gender in, in the survey? Yeah, was there absolutely just uh, things that you mentioned uh, for a woman, uh, for a girl, adolescent girl, especially, it would be very hard for her to commute. So a brother or a father would need to chaperone her, um, as opposed to a boy who could just take care of his own commute and just be at the academy or be at the school, etc., on his own. So that significantly would uh, hinder a girl's um, access to education. And the second thing that stood in their way was household chores. So a girl was expected to do a lot more household tasks. So she needed more flexibility in, in how she manages her routine. Uh, but the motivation was really quite there. Like, it's amazing. We work with a lot of girls' schools now, with especially with our connected classrooms model, the B2B model. We've really focused on girls' schools because um, that's where it's, it's, again, really hard to get, uh, you know, we basically what happens is that girls drop out and then we work with a partner, get those girls back into school and then tell them to convert a secondary school into a high school and Ed Casa sort of takes over the high school part of it all. Um, so, so the motivation girls have is amazing. Uh, they're really intrinsically motivated to study and they, they form a relationship with the teacher also really well and really fast. Um, so yeah, even at the survey, those kind of indications were there that girls are really 
intrinsically motivated to study uh, but because of household chores and cultural restrictions it's it's harder for them the access issue is way more pronounced for girls than it is for boys and in at the beginning you mentioned you know that when the three of you came together and wanted to solve this problem now that when you look back and it's still a very you're very early on in your journey like what is uh one interesting success or major success that you look back and say wow we didn't think we would be this good at this um that you that comes to your mind and also on the, at the same uh you know moment like what are some areas that you still think at casa as a company needs to improve on yeah so um uzair in terms of traction um we have about 40 schools that we are working with right now we have about uh 72000 users some of them from these schools but most of them from our b2c version we've got a youtube channel where we have about 800 free videos of different concepts uh that students can watch and learn from and they gear towards exams um uh, so when i look at this community and uh the closeness of this community that makes me really happy like when i look at how students are interacting with the content and gaining from it um it just makes me feel validated because we started this with a with a We're very social cause. We are we are a private limited company because we wanted this company to be sustainable and to grow and really um, address the needs that the user had. But uh, we always did this with the with the vision of um, you know for us education is sort of the biggest bridge between the world that we have and the world that we want. So when we see that education being you know helping students empowering them, we feel that we're closer in creating the world that we sort of idealize in our mind, uh, and that has been a great. Uh, validation for me we get a lot of user testimonials if you just go on the youtube and you sort of just scroll down on the videos and see the comments people are making it it uh, really can as a co-founder really sort of cheer you up and then the and then the stickiness of it right so uh, for the in the b2c as well and the b2b where customers are actually paying us 90% of them once they start a paying relationship with us do actually stay on board and continue that process uh, so so that's uh you know just to see your community grow and to see that you put in that effort and now you know in a, in years to years you're seeing the benefits of that has been very rewarding in terms of improvement i i do feel that uh a there needs to be more awareness around online education um the users need to also be trained in how to be online learners right so there's a fair amount of responsibility that comes on a student when they're online learners as opposed to when they're sitting in a classroom so just ex- just conveying your expectation as an online educator that what you need from the student and what the student can expect from you uh, i think there needs to be more awareness around that uh, so so second thing um third thing i would say that i think our user experience should be improved we are working on that we are working on uh, having a dedicated app where the user gets a customized journey that's sort of the power of online learning where you can really differentiate your instruction according to a student's level like for example was there in high school everybody would get the same test right like you the teacher couldn't really create 50 versions of the test uh you know to cater to your need and your learning level but in online education you can do that it's it can be dynamic and it can be the you know the question set the question bank the instruction can really be tailored to a user's level so we're really trying to do that create customized journeys and uh, cater to that student Um another thing I would say that I want to improve although I feel like we have really kept this at the ethos of the company is that education is a relationship. So at all times the teacher you know should be available to the student even if it's in an online setting. 
and the, the student should look at the teacher as a role model and as a mentor as well because that and especially at that age of high school where you're deciding your subjects you're deciding you know university paths and then career and so on they need a lot of hand holding and guidance um so i think we need to also do that more we do that but i want to accelerate that yeah the customized journey part is interesting right because you can if you have the app or if you're tracking where a student is spending more time or going back yeah. on a video and you know trying to understand a concept if you can customize what they then see because they may be struggling with something or are not getting a particular concept and you provide them with the right prompts to make sure that they get that or if they in the quizzes are struggling with a particular topic then you recommend that they go back and look at something else um can be really powerful right because i agree like when you're in the analog classroom or when i was in an analog classroom like the teacher did not know what i was not getting and they just move on because they have 45 minutes to get through a certain class or a certain topic and you get it you get it if you don't get it maybe go to a tuition and ask someone or a private tutor and maybe they may not even know what you're not getting and why you're not getting right so that's the power of technologies by collecting that data you can really yeah. customize things and make sure yeah. people get topics that they may not otherwise be struggling to get um in recent weeks and months right when schools were shut down the government started focusing more on distance learning we saw ppv have educational shows etc um how do you see the policy environment in pakistan i want to start with the on the education side and what's going on and what Yeah. more you know i know you mentioned that having more awareness um on distance learning and education would be interesting but what are other areas where you see um the government should lean in and and you know catalyze change um and then i want to get to the digital divide but let's first start here in terms of what how you saw the change happen from the government side in in recent months yeah i think the government has been fairly keen on trying out technology solutions um, even before covid we were in talks with the federal minister he visited our office a uh, lot of sort of back and forth on how the government and uh, even a startup like us could could collaborate and work together so there was always an appetite the government showed uh, but the, the 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 pace at which things could move has always been you know something that needs to happen faster um, and another thing is that i feel in terms of policy the public private partnership requires structural change in procurement policies that the government has uh, so you know they the kp government for example would be uh, working with online educators from abroad uh, they they're doing quite a few of uh, making solutions on technical training in their classrooms in kp and there's some really good initiatives that they're taking but why can't pakistani uh, startups or pakistani online educators be part of that pool you know mm. uh they they should also sort of have a you know made in pakistan like there were some talks that they are going to do something like that but you know when are we going to see that happening uh them picking up pakistani companies and uh taking them forward because there's a lot of innovation like look at covid time right who are the companies that have been most innovative who have been able to rise to this occasion and serve the demand is mostly been companies that are new that that are you know find it easier to pivot and have been bringing in new solutions uh but how much uptake has the government or you know other people shown to these companies that i, I don't know how how um, you know there's definitely been a increase in demand even for edcasa like three times the users that we have now uh, you know before march now we have three times those users 
twice as likely to engage and the engagement levels have increased and, and it's been phenomenal the acceleration of edtech um, but in terms of um, you know the big people pivoting and the government sort of working with them uh, i feel like the procurement patterns really systematically should um, allow for startups to bid for government uh, rfps and so on so i think that's a big thing and i think a provision of internet that the government can really help out there i think the telcos have shown an appetite and the telcos have like for example telenor and and edgasa have formed a partnership we just recently signed an mou with them and they were very forthcoming with with how they wanted to bring out edtech in a in a big way um and you know they're looking at really reducing the data cost to almost making it zero rated and and we're talking different back and forth about what can be done but that's the need of the hour uh, and we really hope to see government uh, making policies to ensure that data is extremely cheap because it actually is going to really help with the job creation element as well like if you look at reports right now you know the people in knowledge based work um, for them there's an, a huge acceleration but for all other businesses it's not like that so if there's internet and people can you know a gather those skills and b use the internet to you know do their businesses it's it's going to be good for the economy so so i think there's a massive uh, need to look into provision of data and then also data security and you know uh, protection uh, while using data responsibly and so on yeah the digital divide part is is interesting and and it it's you know you said that there is 80% 4g coverage in pakistan but if you look at yeah. even pakistan among its peers in the region barring afghanistan it trails them right in terms of 4g adoption smartphone adoption um and even in terms of the tax environment for telecoms and data like it's i i yeah. personally i mean i understand why the government has found it easy to tax cell phones and your data plans and your internet plans because yeah. there are only so few avenues they have available to raise that money um so it's an easy solution but it hampers growth right and yeah. i had a, a my guest last week when we were talking about the informal economy that's what we were talking about was the government at some point needs to shift away from a tax led approach to a growth led approach because you the freelancer right if you're going to tax their internet it's going to make them less competitive competitive when yeah. coding and bidding on upstart or upwork.com or whatever um and that you need to think about on the education lens as well that if the goal is to enhance access through technology then why are we taxing yeah. technology solutions so much why is internet so expensive etc um so i i mean that brings me to my second part of this divide question is there is still a digital divide in pakistan right particularly at the bottom of the pyramid that you're targeting um yeah. in terms of feature phones access to laptops and things like that how have you sort of navigated that divide um particularly in rural settings and and what has worked and what hasn't worked in terms of making sure that these schools these children have the right hardware or the technology and internet access that is needed for you to deliver the experience that that you want to deliver to them yeah so then i can talk about what how we pivoted because i mentioned that we're working with a lot of schools and uh, just around uh, round about the time of the board intermediate exams this corona pandemic hit uh, there was a lot of stress that the students were facing because the government uh, didn't make it entirely clear uh, you know what was going to happen 
Um, so this, this, the students really needed a solution at that time and they needed a teacher to sort of talk to and then revise their course, you know, because they weren't sure if the exams are going to happen or not. So what we did was that we had the, all the data of the, these students who were in these 40 schools and we conducted a comprehensive survey of all of them. Um, asking them availability of smartphones, not ownership, but availability in a household, and then the availability of internet uh, and so on. So we found out that, uh, you know, even with the students that we work on, a bunch of them are coming from families that belong to daily laborers, you know, who have like one household um, member earning and have big families and, you know, really looking at a bottom of pyramid. A lot of our schools are in uh, South Punjab. Um, so they're in Muzaffargar, Bawalpur, Rahim Yar Khan. So I'm really talking about districts where there is poverty and there is, um, you know, the corona pandemic has hit them in economically. So we, we spoke with these students and it turned out that about uh, in some areas 50% and in some areas 60% students had access to smartphones and they had access to the internet as well. Uh, we work with telcos to provide extremely subsidized rates um, and some of the clients that we work with also footed in bills for these uh, internet and it, it was about it was coming out to be 300 rupees per student uh, per month for the internet cost where the student could get um, access to our uh, classes on a daily basis um, so immediately it was, it was very easy to serve these students who had access to smartphones and then you know just solve for the inter internet issue and, and you're good to go because then your classes can you know be streamed from their homes and they can continue their revision as they were. Now, those schools, those students who didn't have access to smartphones, that was a bigger problem to solve. And, and clearly there is a need for, um, you know, these older students. I'm not propagating for the younger ones so much because I understand that, you know, e-learning looks very differently for them and their needs in education are very different from the needs of a high school student who's appearing for exam. Uh, but there is a need for these students, you know, the high school ones appearing for their exams to have internet access, to have, uh, you know, learn. There's a lot more learning that you can do if you, are online and you have a device. So there is need to provide these devices to them, but they didn't have these devices. So what we did was that we started a worksheet and SMS based campaign with them, where we would um, give them these, uh, you know, question banks and, and sort of hold them accountable to submit it to their school who would then, you know, sort of post them to us for us to check and, you know, curate that and keep the students accountable at all times. So we sort of improvised and did this um, two phase thing, which was one was using smartphones and the other was using SMSs because everybody did have dumb phones. So it was, e it was easy to reach them through SMS. So that's how we pivoted. But moving forward, I mean, um, I, I'm seeing all these news about World Bank giving government funding to make technology solutions accessible to, to students. So I'm hoping to see a change, you know, in, in uh, availability of tablets and cheaper solution devices that these students can benefit from then. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about like, you know, even the fact that initially you said, right, a lot of these kids go outside of school for learning. So there is a part of money that their family sets aside on top of the schooling fees, if they're paying that to educate them even better and have a tutor, yeah. for example. Um, you said there are 90% is your retention rate when people join yeah. the program and start using it. So maybe there is an opportunity for telcos like the way they've done in Africa, for example, of having paper day phones, right? Because in my mind, the barrier for the family in South Punjab is not that they don't have the daily amount of money to pay for a phone. It's that they may not have 10,000 or 15,000 or 20,000 rupees as a chunk to put forward yeah. into a phone that, that can then help their child have a better education. So again, there are innovative ways of enabling access through financing 
um yeah. you know and i think that's where in one area where pakistan for example has lagged behind is we haven't been financially inclusive at the bottom of the pyramid which yeah. then you were it solves a lot of problems because i'm sure that a lot of the bottom of the pyramid uh, folks who can put aside 20 50 rupees a day that gives them access to data plus a phone that is not even a smartphone could be a feature phone so it's not fully dumb um that then enhances everything that child can do on that phone and have a better education right so um i think creative solutions are needed and parts of africa india bangladesh are already testing that out so one can hope that yeah. pakistan follows suit because it is it does lag behind even some sub saharan yeah. african countries right in that segment um i want to pivot a bit um to your own personal experiences as an entrepreneur and you're a fulbright scholar uh moved back to pakistan a few years ago uh what has that journey been like for you um first spending time in the united states and taking those lessons learned coming back to pakistan and now being a female entrepreneur so for reserve uh, for me uh, the fulbright why i wanted to go and pursue my degree was basically to uh look at solutions in education for pakistan so it was very clear the focus was very clear for me um i didn't know if i was going to be an entrepreneur or not um i just knew that i wanted to be a part of the solution in some way or the other i used to work uh, with uh with the world bank reform program with the punjab government um i used to work with before that I used to work with usaid on on uh you know technical training and so on so i i looked at the education problem from a multi stakeholder lens and really um what i needed to learn when i applied for my fulbright was uh technology and scalability and that's why i went to the school um you know carnegie mellon because it, you know the the data technology robotics all of that is really um that, which sorry to interrupt for missing. for those listening carnegie mellon's tech programs <laughs> are so amazing that in fact uber <laughs> when it was setting up its driverless program basically bought out their entire lab so just wanted to provide that context about how great that school's technology focuses <laughs> Absolutely, like there we were, they were talking about hyperloops and Elon Musk was coming on our campus, and and you saw these things being built in front of you. So I think the first thing when I came back to Pakistan was, uh, have we, like, when are we going to catch up with all the innovation that's happening? When are we going to expose ourselves? Ourselves? I felt like there was an exposure uh, problem as well, where people were, uh, you know, solving problems in a very traditional way to. to things that really have uh, now people abroad have found solutions so you know that you can actually i'm not saying copy paste but you can sort of draw inspiration from uh, but anyway i was i was mentioning that uh, when i applied for my fulbright i was very clear on what i wanted to do so the coming back to pakistan was a no brainer for me i i always wanted to do that uh, the the entrepreneurship was actually not uh, something i had thought about that's uh, something i stumbled upon uh, my husband you know he he always wanted to do something of his own and And, and he came from that mindset of uh, you know building something of his own uh, so he started uh, thinking along these lines and one it was clear he wants to be an entrepreneur when he heads back um so when we decided on on starting at casa on really working in edtech uh, that's when i got really interested because i felt like this this really could solve a bunch of problems for the country so that's where i got pulled into the entrepreneurship space and uh, i haven't looked back it's been 3 years since i've been of uh, dedicated to edcasa working full time and uh, and it's been uh, it's been a steep learning curve even for me the the entrepreneurship journey uh, one thing i didn't expect was that uh, the kind of resilience it requires because you know at, at the end of the the day if you're doing a job you can come back and you know your problem and your job's problem can be kind of separated but with entrepreneurship 
you know the company becomes you you know you literally think of it as your baby and everything is you just want to go and tackle every problem on your own uh so it requires a lot of resilience but also self discipline because you don't want to you know uh constantly just get overworked and and burn yourself out um so yeah but but actually it's been the most rewarding thing i've ever done so far uh because you like for me it 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 was really problematic to see how the crisis in education was being handled and and the fact that i felt like i couldn't do more but here with edcasa i feel like i can do more like i can push harder i can form better partnerships and i can scale like i think with technology anybody who's working in technology knows it's hyper scalable so that's something that's really exciting for me no that's fascinating and i mean it is you're right about the fact that when you're in a job um basically you can come home at 5 6 7 pm and turn off the phone or ignore the phone cuz if the emails yeah. come they come like whatever but in this case you are the person writing the email to yourself in your head and responding to it even when you're home right so the discipline becomes very important and developing those barriers that say okay this is work yeah. time this is not work time is is very important um as a female entrepreneur though i think one of the yeah. things that i continue to see whether it's on social media when i read government reports is that there is a gender divide in pakistan in education as we talked about but also in terms of achievement or entrepreneurship or being in positions of leadership right you're a chief education officer at a startup um how has that been like given the way pakistani society has is structured and you are dealing in in a sector in at the bottom of the pyramid that perhaps has more barriers uh to women leading playing a leading role um and so what has that experience been like uh for you as an entrepreneur yeah um so there there like multiple um um facets to this i felt um one is like when you're talking to an investor uh there's a very different sort of response you'll get being a female entrepreneur especially in the tech you know if you're coming talking to any common man and telling them about what you're doing i'll give you a very interesting anecdote about this their response is different but if you're talking to a student and you're an educator who's a woman and leading a company the response is very different so, so let's have examples from yeah let's yeah. do that so let's talk about like i'll give you a really interesting anecdote so um last year i went to this distance learning and uh, teaching conference that's hosted by the university of madison wisconsin it's a superb conference you know uh practitioners from all over the world come and talk about best practices so obviously being uh you know it casa is one of the fast growing education companies in pakistan we got invited and it was a lot of learning i was very excited so i'm at the airport in lahore and i'm all fully ready to go and you know the custom guy stops me and he's like okay what's very going so i said i'm going to the united states so he said why are you going so i said okay there's this conference and i explained the background to him so he said okay what do you do so i said i you know i'm co-founder of edcasa it's a technology company so he said you mean you're a teacher So I said no I mean I am a co-founder of a technology company and it took him like I could just tell that he wasn't believing me he was like how can you be that like you know you're not that old you're a girl like you're a woman like how can you do it do something tech right because it's unheard of you know you can literally count the number of women who are in in the tech leading technology you know lead, uh, sort of in leadership positions in technology companies in Pakistan but yes women are in the education space I would just say not yeah. just in Pakistan around or even in yeah. the US around it's a big problem. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh so so you see those kind of encounters which are like, you know, fairly common, right? Like uh, talking to a customs guy or talking to a security, you know, 
car or whoever just explaining your work uh, and i didn't want to give him the satisfaction that no i'm just a school teacher i mean school teachers are great and i am an educator i am a teacher more than anything but i'm also a technology you know company's owner so i wanted to drive that point home it gave me great pleasure <laughs> but but it just shows uh, you this kind of stereotypes you will have that how you know what can women do what should women be doing what are women doing uh, that kind of a thing but but for example if you if i go to a school and i love talking to my students i love going to visit our schools and i love meeting with different students um you know being in that space as a woman who's leading that is that i think has been a strong suit of mine um my students have found it easy to connect with me they you know trust me with with mentorship and guidance and so on so i think that's been a, a strength that i've leveraged uh but even personally if i if i think about it uh you do see a bit of second guessing like as a woman you said put, put down a suggestion you see that sometimes it's taken seriously sometimes not so you kind of sometimes think twice uh that this thing i'm advocating is should i keep advocating at it because there is a bit of you know hesitance that you need and especially when it comes to financials like you're talking to an investor you're talking and and ecasa is a social impact company right and i love talking about the impact of it because it means a lot to me but sometimes when you're talking to an investor and you're talking about social outcomes they'll be like up ngo and i'm not an ngo i am a private limited company but this matters to me like and there there are lots of very successful companies all over the world which are doing you know which are doing impact work and doing them um you know profitably so you can do both um so i feel like there are times when i have to change the the rhetoric that i'm using around different stakeholders and then um you know put on sort of different hats yeah no i mean it, it it's complicated right and like even i'm with investors like it's changing slowly where there is a conversation at least for public limited companies and big ceos in terms of is is your responsibility just to the shareholder and business 101 will teach you that yes it is yeah. uh, but increasingly there are shareholders yeah. that are demanding that you have more of an impact beyond shareholders and you measure stakeholder impact as part of your vision and mission as a company because just delivering profits and having a trillion dollars in share buybacks is no longer enough um whether it's for society or for your own shareholders because they're activists in nature and they want to somehow catalyze change in whatever area they want right some guessing at some point in pakistan there will be that conversation as well and you're at the cutting edge of it so that that's great um but i think again like technology entrepreneurship and the role of women right is still one of those things that people don't put it together um and again yeah. you're driving the shift in that conversation so i would personally just say like don't let them have the satisfaction of thinking that you are just a teacher or whatever i think it's important yeah. to explain that no you are a technology entrepreneur and that you're not just a teacher and yeah. a woman can be a technology entrepreneur and lead Absolutely. an organization so i want to you know conclude by the last couple of questions on this same topic so you know there are a lot of aspiring younger women and men but i would like you to speak more to women here and young girls who want to do something on their own um and you know want to become an entrepreneur or have a vision of where they want to be 5 years 10 years from now uh, what would your advice be uh, within the pakistani cultural context to them in terms of how do they go about achieving their dreams um ozair i think first is a lot of sort of uh, reflection on what you really want to do i was very purpose driven i knew very clearly that i wanted to work in the education space 
um, and once you are very aligned with what you want to do, then work doesn't even seem like work. It seems more of something that is fueling you and taking you forward, propelling you forward, gives you a lot of innate intrinsic energy. Uh, so one thing is like, you know, what, what really excites you? Um, so find that one thing that really excites you that you're ready to commit to. Um, I think that that should be like the biggest sort of roadmap um, that helps you decide what to do. Second thing is take stock of what you know and what you need to know. I think that's really important in life to uh, really not, not be shy in uh, thinking about what you don't know, you know, and, and be very clear of what you know as well. Like I think a lot of times girls, and I've seen myself do this as well, I'll feel like, okay, I don't know these 15 things and I just know, like I'll forget about what the things I know. So I'll actually quote a really interesting study. Um, it shows that uh, the study that Linda Babcock conducted, she's an, uh, she, she's an author and writes amazing books and her books have really left a mark on me around women and negotiations. So she mentioned about how if there's like a job uh, job description, right, that, that's put out. If uh, you're a woman and looking at it and you know 80% of the things and you don't know 20% of the things, you are less likely to apply uh, to it because you'll focus on the 20% of the things you don't know. As opposed to a man who may know 50% of the things and 50% not, but he'll focus on the things he knows and says, oh, I'm a perfect fit and he's going to apply. So technically you can be more qualified, but you're going to feel like you don't know that. You second guess your own self. Uh, so you need to be wary of these sort of internal biases uh, that you may have. You don't even know you have them, but you will. I mean, I, I got exposed to them after reading a lot of uh, Linda Babcock's work and actually dealing courses with her as well. Um, so, so just know your biases, know your strengths and know your weaknesses and don't worry about, uh, you know, finding how you can bridge those weaknesses because obviously there is just natural, it's just human, um, you know, and don't worry. Like, I feel like a lot of people shy away from technology. A lot of people shy away and women, especially from financials, like get into it, you know, really understand how the profit and loss statement works, the balance sheets works, how cash flows are key. If you want to do your own thing, like understand how cash flows are done, structured, planned, you know, all of that. Um, so, so those those things uh, sort of really help you be systematic, like take a systematic approach to it, um, and look out for like mentors. It, I think it goes a long way to see how somebody you, you know, has has done something you wish to do, you know, something like that you wish to do. Pick up a biography, read about it, see how they. I mean, everybody has obstacles. Everybody has to create their own course. So, how did they do it? Like, draw inspiration from that. Um, so that's helped me so far in um, pushing boundaries. And um, and another thing is like, I think like for me, I when I started managing a team, like at Casa has a team of 18 people and uh, a lot of them are women, a lot of them are men as well. I did feel like it's, uh, at times I had to, um, what I started doing when I felt like a man wasn't listening to me was I'd prompt, uh, you know, another member of the team uh, to say who's a man and say, can you please talk to him? He's not really listening to me. But then I realized that that's not really good, the right approach. Like if somebody's not listening to you, taking you seriously because of gender, you need to call them out and say, you need to take me seriously. I'm, we commit, you committed to something, you have to get it done. Like it doesn't matter who it's coming from. It's a commitment you made. So you need to honor it. Uh, so I changed my tactic. Initially, I would leave that work. I'll say, okay, no, I don't want to bother myself with it. But you have to stand up for yourself rather than make somebody else do your work for you. So so these kind of things just keep coming and you just have to be conscious. And I'm sure there's a bunch of things I'm not conscious of right now that I will be maybe in a few years time. So do you think that that latter part, right, of wanting someone else to speak on your behalf is then also connected to the stuff you mentioned around that women shying away from, you know, job applications that they may be 80% qualified, voila. 
men, men are trained to be good at BSing or winging it as one would call it, right? So do you think that is connected to the fact that in that room, in that environment, you're less willing to speak up because somehow you're more cautious about, you know, who you are and whether you will come across as someone who's knowledgeable or not? Yeah, it, it does come down to self-confidence as there and a comfort zone. Uh, it's, you know, traditionally being brought up in Pakistan, you your comfort zone isn't to be very, like, as a woman, to be very aggressive and, you know, always say your mind and so on. And it's not just Pakistan. I feel like all, all the time women are more cautious than men. Um, so, so you have to sort of get out of your comfort zone. And um, if, you know, just stick to it principally, like, just know this is principally not right. And it that's what matters more than anything else. It's, it shouldn't come down to, oh, how I shouldn't, like, for example, I'd worry if I have to school someone, what kind of tone should I use? You know, if I have to ask somebody to, you know, give me work and they're not doing it, I'll think about, okay, what kind of tone should I use? What kind? No, it comes down to principle, like take a principle stance and correct it uh, and be confident about it because you're in the right. Like if you're not confident about it because you're not in the right, then that's a separate thing. But if you're in the right, you should have confidence around it. So I think it is definitely a game of confidence and not overthinking maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the overthinking part is interesting and this cuts across genders, I think, as well, right? Because a lot of times I'm thinking to myself, if I'm writing an email or making a point to yeah. someone in a meeting or want to make a point in a meeting, um, I have 10 things to do and I don't want five of those things to be about what is it that I need to do to structure this comment that is the sixth thing on my list to do it properly, right? It's just like you have other things to do and it's like sometimes yeah. you... But I say, okay, I'm going to make that point. And rather than spend five hours thinking about how yeah. to, yes, if it's a board meeting or if it's a meeting to a yeah. CEO or someone really important, yes, you want to spend that time and prepare. I'm not saying don't prepare, but often I think people, especially younger people, in particular women, but I think even men tend to do that is when you're junior, you spend an inordinate amount of time making sure that, you know, you say something exactly the right way and then edit it, edit it, edit it. And it's like, just get it done and like get it over with. It's better sometimes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And and I mean, for me, uh, you know, managing a team of 18, that was new, right? And I had to um, really give myself that kind of confidence that I know how to handle this. And it's it's worked out really well. Like I'm, I'm, I have a really good team that I'm very proud of at EdCasa. And, you know, these teachers have been with me for the last two years or so. Uh, but it did take some time to get used to for sure yeah and i mean the mentorship as well right it's like it's very important and there are things you learn from your mentors that you know i think neither one of us would say we would be where we are without guidance and mentorship but there are things that you would otherwise not even know about like for example uh, i was talking to my colleague uh, who's, who's been a manager and mentor of mine for a while and he was like well i have to lay off some people you know, because of uh, coronavirus and where things are in, in one of the companies he's part Sorry, of. Sorry, your voice is breaking. I think I lost you. Can you hear me? Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah, sorry, Zaid, I couldn't hear the okay. last few comments you made. Yeah, so I was saying, like, you know, we were talking I to... I can now, but your videos, videos stop. Okay, let me just give it a second or so. We'll edit this out. Okay. So I, I was saying like, you know, I was talking to him and he, 
is someone that he was like, I have to let go of some people and lay them off because of what's happened um, because of coronavirus. And I was just thinking to myself, like at some point when he's done with it, because right now he's going through that process, I want to ask him about how did he do that? Because I've never laid off people. I'm yeah. not in that position, right? But at some point in my career, I will yeah. be. Um, hopefully not as many times, but yeah. it's just a fact of life that you will have to let go of people for certain situations. Um, but you, you can learn from your mentor about things you do and things you don't. And in fact, when you have that conversation with them, they may even think of things that being like, oh, I should have done this differently. And that's a way to improve, right? So yeah. I think mentors are key also, not just because they guide you about your career, but you can learn from them about things that you may actually have to do three, four, five years from now. And I think that that's key to learn about that stuff. Um, just as uh, before we conclude, you mentioned, you know, uh, learning and knowing what you don't know. So in sticking to that theme, what are two or three books that you would recommend, whether it's an entrepreneurship or on ed tech that uh, people should read and, and pay attention to? Um, so I love uh, reading. It's my favorite go-to thing. Um, so I do like a week, uh, book a week. It's I really, really enjoy reading. So it's really hard for me to narrow down to, you know, just a couple. Uh, but, you know, earlier we were talking about uh, women and negotiation. So this is a really good book that I would encourage men, women, everybody to read it. It's called um, Ask For It. Um, it's geared towards more of a gender narrative on how women can use the power of negoti negotiation. Um, uh, traditionally, women are not as good negotiators as men, it turns out, in, in through research and so on. But that's a really good book. Ask for it. Like, super recommended. Um, a second book, which is more strategy and technology, is Hooked. Um, and it really explains to you create a user-centric product um, in the technology space, the different sort of levers and, and things to pull and push, and really understand who your user is. I so said that that book was really helpful for me. Um, so these two books I, I do recommend. Uh, third, I love reading biographies. So, I mean, um, I, I can't recommend those because that totally depends on the on the interest of people, what what kind of personalities they like to follow. So, no, but what's the most user. impactful impactful biography that you've read? Can you hear me? most impactful biography i've read um yeah um i actually so the three that are coming to my mind um i actually really like this biography by sting uh you know the musician um he he's written a stellar biography it's it's not a very known uh, book but it's a really good book I, I really enjoyed because he talks about how he came from ireland and there was a lot of poverty and how the community sort of looked after one another, given the scarcity of resources and how he transcended all of that to become what he is now. So that was an amazing, very inspiring book. Um, the second one, I, I really enjoyed Trevor Noah's book as well. Again, there were parts of it that were relatable, um, you know, with his uh, childhood. Um, and the third one that's making the waves these days is Michelle Obama's. I think that was a really good book too. Um, so these three have, have, have really inspired me in different ways. Yeah, Michelle Obama has been making the waves. I, I haven't read the book, but I've seen the Netflix yeah. special that she has on and it was fascinating. And we were watching it and Lauren, my wife and I were like, you know, she was especially was like, I want her to run for president, but I know she will never because she hates yeah. being in the public spotlight. <laughs> so 
um, no, that is a that is an yeah. inspiring book, and what she's achieved, you know, as a woman of color is just it's phenomenal. So. Yeah. Thank you so Absolutely. much for joining. It was great having a discussion with you about Ed Casa and entrepreneurship and and mentorship. So thank you for taking out the time. Please stay safe. I know there's a lot going on in yeah. Pakistan with coronavirus. So take care of yourself and your family, and we'll be in touch. Thanks so much, Azay. It was really lovely catching up with you after a decade. <laughs> <laughs> take care. Bye bye. All right. Bye, Azay. Take care.